We're going to London to speak to Rich Preston from BBC World. Morning, Rich. Very good evening to you, Karen. Yeah, I hope you've got better weather than us. Yeah, I, I don't mean to rub salt in the wound, but it's a nice, uh, crisp, clear, still uh, February February morning here in London. Uh, yeah, I hope it's not too bad where you are, but I, I know some of your listeners will be going through a pretty rough time at the moment. Yeah, it is pretty rough, but I'm glad to hear that it's lovely in London. Okay, let's start with North Korea, and there's a big birthday celebration in North Korea, but could that be a cause for concern for other East Asian countries this week? What's happening? Uh, Yes, it could, Karen. Now, this Thursday, North Korea is celebrating the birthday of Kim Jong-il. He is the father of the current leader, Kim Jong-un. Now, Many of your uh, listeners, if they watch the world news agenda, will know that Pyongyang usually marks the occasion of a leader's birth or some kind of big national celebration with some sort of military display, some some kind of military muscle flexing. Uh, and we're not expecting that to be any different this time. Uh, so it's, it's often a reason really to, to bring out the tanks and the missiles, uh, parade them around Pyongyang and, of course, uh, you know, broadcast that footage around the world. We've seen that dozens of times before. Now, the reason that's significant at the moment, Karen, is because just last week, North Korea conducted a huge military parade, the highlight of which was it displaying its largest ever uh, long-range ICBMs. They are intercontinental ballistic missiles. Now, they are the ones which analysts say could theoretically reach the US, but also what matters about this now is because North Korea has so many of them, they could not only reach the US, but overwhelm the US. So Washington's getting a bit twitchy about this, of course, as are North Korea's regional neighbours, South Korea, Japan and such like. Um, now, that said, North Korea has never successfully tested one of its long range ballistic missiles. So there is a, a slight element of emperor's new clothes about this, but we are anticipating those tests to begin shortly. And we do wonder whether Thursday, this birthday of Kim Jong-il, could be the perfect time to start testing these missiles. Now, the state news agency said last week that this was all about North Korea facing down its enemies, quote, nuke for nuke, confrontation for confrontation. So no mincing their words there. So as I say, South Korea and Japan pretty nervous about these missiles that North Korea displayed last week. And with this big birthday coming up on Thursday this week, anticipation that that could be used as an excuse, a reason to start test firing some of these rockets. I'm a little bit confused. Kim Jong-il's birthday celebrations. Not Kim yes. Jong-un's birthday Not celebration. Kim Jong-un. Now, the, the, the way the kind of lineage works in North Korea ever since the Korean War is that the leaders are seen as, you know, coming down from heaven. They're seen as, um, you know, the, these kind of religious deities, if you like. They, they represent the gods on North Korea's earth. And so they continue to be worshipped long after their deaths. Um, there are huge statues uh, of Kim Jong-il and the uh, Kim Jong-il, I beg your pardon, and uh, the founding father of the country, Kim Il-sung, all over North Korea. And their birthdays continue to, to be marked uh, in very special ways. Propaganda documentaries, floral tributes, and as I say, military displays as well. Gee, okay. And will that go on forever, his birthday being celebrated? Well, I mean, as long as North Korea is 
in the current kind of political state it's in at the moment, yeah, basically Kim Il-sung died in, I think off the top of my head, it was around uh, the 1970s. And he yeah, continues to be worshipped as a god, huge statues. Uh, and there's all this kind of folklore and uh, mythical stories which kids are taught in school about you know, how their leaders came down from heaven and how they revolutionised the country and worked for the people. And then, you know, when they died, they, they ascended to heaven, but maintain this kind of godly status. Okay, uh, Richard, we'll stay in that part of the world. And uh, on the topic of rockets, what, what is Japan doing this week that you're keeping an eye on? Uh, yeah, so Japan is uh, test firing its own rocket this week. Now, this isn't a military rocket. This is a space rocket. It's sending its new H3 rocket up into space. Now, Japan, like many countries, wants to do more in space, Karen, and there are several legitimate reasons why you would want to do this. Communications, IT, weather observations, but also there is that edge of defensive security as well. Case in point, what we were just talking about with North Korea. So on Wednesday, Japan's launching this new H3 rocket. It says it's its most versatile, most reliable, most powerful rocket yet. Now, Japan is already in active in space, but this is about Japanese autonomy in space. It doesn't want to have to rely on access to American satellites. It's much more about doing its own thing. What is significant with this rocket is what it will be carrying. Now, it's going to have a couple of satellites and communications devices on it. But in particular, Japan is experimenting with a new sensor designed to detect, guess what, missile launches. This is exactly what we were just talking about. Japan is increasingly twitchy about the growing might of its neighbours, but not just North Korea, China, potentially Russia as well. Uh, now Japan is one of the countries which is increasing its military and defence spending. Uh, one of those areas where defence spending is going into is in space. Big cash injections for the space programme in Japan. The thing is, Japan has some work to do on that front. In October last year, it had to send a self-destruct command to one of its rockets less than seven minutes after it launched. That ended up crashing into the sea off the east coast of the Philippines. Now, that was a big moment of embarrassment for Japan. First rocket failure in nearly two decades. So Japan has some ground to make up here. It has the ambitions. It says it's stamping up the cash. It has the technology. Japan very good on the technological front. But one thing it's kind of lacking is this experience. Uh, so it needs to up its game on that front if it wants to compete with the likes of the US and especially if it wants to get ahead of the likes of China and Russia. Well, and Rich, in Europe this week, there's a major get-together around security and defence. Well, we can imagine why it's important now. But what is happening? Yeah, this is the Munich Security Conference. It's the, the 59th time this has been held. As you said, we don't really need to explain why this matters at the moment. Security in Europe is at a place it hasn't been in for decades or even generations. This is a three-day event. Political and security leaders from across Europe will be gathering in Munich, as well as key European allies. So Vice President Kamala Harris will be flying in from Washington, for example. Now, on one hand, Karen, it's your regular conference, different sessions planned. This is about sharing knowledge and collaboration. Uh, being held in Germany, we imagine there will be big discussions about German foreign policy. That's really been tested recently with the war in Ukraine and the discussion over whether Germany would send tanks to Kiev. 
there will also be discussions around technology, food security, energy, climate, all these kind of things. But this year in particular, there are two other things to watch out for. Now, one of them is just the opportunity for these leaders to be in the same place at the same time. It doesn't happen very often that you get, say, the US vice president in the same room as the Polish defense minister and the British prime minister. So given what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, we're imagining imagining that there will be lots of chances for these leaders to split off and have very quiet, discreet, but important chats about the approaches their countries are taking to the war in Ukraine. Another thing that we'll be watching out for is what's called the Munich Security Index. Now, this is a comprehensive assessment of how 12 big countries, the G7 and the BRICS nations, view different global and domestic risks. And this is really interesting for kind of testing the water for what the different priorities are in different countries. So interestingly, last year, things that were top of the agenda were climate change, Trade and travel was another one. Of course, it was not long after COVID, so lots of concern about the economies. China was high on the list, in particular, a perceived risk of China invading Taiwan. Russia, meanwhile, was generally pretty low on the risk register. This year, it'll be interesting to see how that has flipped. First of all, we're expecting Russia and Ukraine to have bumped things up slightly. We're expecting energy and food security to have bumped up slightly as well. China, perhaps still hanging around near the top spot. But what's interesting is when people are confronted with very immediate problems, you know, a war on their continent, food shortages and so on, those long-term concerns like climate change often drop down the agenda. They drop down in people's mindsets because people are, are worried much more about the immediate urgency. So climate change, as I said, was near the, the top spot for most countries last year. It'll be interesting to see this year if it stayed in the top spot. I'm anticipating it probably won't have done. But the, uh, the Munich Security Conference and the, the Munich Security Index uh, later on this week, Karen. And just to wrap it up, party, party, that sounds good, in, in, in Rio. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is the world's biggest party. The uh, Rio Carnival gets underway on Saturday. Uh, this is the, the largest carnival in the world. Five million people go there every year. Now, it was postponed during COVID, so last year was a really big one because it was the, the first one in two years. Um, now, the origins of, of Rio Carnival go back to the 18th century, Karen, and these uh, festivals which were celebrated by Portuguese immigrants to Brazil. Now, we've all seen the photos, haven't we? Lots of colour, light, music, dancing. The thing about this year that's interesting is that there's real political tension at the moment in Brazil. We've seen the previous president, Jair Bolsonaro, lose the election to Lula Inácio Lula da Silva, who was previously himself jailed for corruption. So, both men very divisive. They both have their passionate supporters and their passionate detractors. But more than that, earlier on this year, we saw supporters of Mr. Bolsonaro storming Brazil's Congress in scenes that were reminiscent of the attack on the US Capitol. So there's this kind of underlying political tension, which really gives the sense that Brazil almost needs this. It's such an important part of Brazil's cultural heritage, this carnival, and as well as that, of course, you know, hundreds of people fly in from around the world to go to carnival. So you know, this kind of underlying political tension, but this big party opportunity, potentially a chance to kind of break that tension and, and a bit of a reset button on feelings in Brazil. So that kicks off this weekend. Sounds good. Rich, thank you very much for joining us and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Karen. Good to talk to you. That's Rich Preston.